Amen. Good morning, church. So glad to see your faces this morning, (laughs) this Easter Sunday morning. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. That's where we're going to be today. John chapter 20, that's where we're going to be. (laughs) The song goes on, too. You just keep on worshiping over there. That's all right. All right. Now, before we get into uh, this passage of Scripture, I... uh, I'm going to have a painting on the screen that I'm sure everyone in this room is familiar with. If you're not familiar with this painting, I don't know where you've been. It's the most famous work of art, apparently, of all of history. People can recognize this painting of the Mona Lisa by da Vinci, okay? Oh, that's okay. That's all right. If you didn't know, this is Mona Lisa. Most people in the world can recognize this piece of art. Even derivatives of the original. If you see anything like it, you know that's the Mona Lisa. And it's in the Louvre in Paris. Now, I've never been to see it, but somebody sent me this article this week that people that go to the Louvre, they spend an average of about 15 seconds in front of the most famous work of art in history. Now, I haven't been there. I hope that I would stay there a little bit longer. But what we're celebrating today in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It is the most important act throughout all of history, okay? And there's this risk that with all the hustle and all the busyness and all the things that are kind of surrounding this celebration, that we would breeze past the reality that Christ was dead and he rose again. So I want us to slow down, and that's my invitation to you before we read it. This is the masterpiece of God's accomplishment for everyone who believes. And so if in this room you come here believing that it's true that Jesus is risen from the dead, I want us to slow down and read this story. It's the most important thing that we could do today. Now, if you haven't been thinking about the events leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection, I want to kind of recap, okay, Ben. Over the course of this week, he's been anointed. He entered the city. He cleansed the temple. He taught lessons to his disciples. He washed their feet. He's betrayed by a disciple. He's denied by one of his closest friends. And in the most undeserved crime in all of history, Jesus suffered in our place for our sins. And crying out, it is finished, like we just sang, on the cross. He's laid into a tomb and a stone has been rolled in front of the grave. And now Jesus has been laid in this place for a few days. There's a Roman guard set in front of the tomb so that nobody could disturb him. And then, three days later, the first day of the week, Some of his friends have prepared spices to anoint his body, and they go there first thing in the morning, Mary Magdalene. And that's where we pick up this story in John chapter 20. Would you read it along with me? We're going to read the entire chapter. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, 
the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And she went there, and she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Verse 24, But now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and the place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Say this with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, I pray that you would help us be still in this moment, that we would pause in front of this masterpiece of your glory, that you defeated even death, and you've given us both comfort and hope for the future because of this 
unbelievable, amazing thing that you've done. I pray that you'd grant us faith to believe and hearts to receive this word, ears to hear. And I pray this for the sake of your great name, Jesus. Amen. Today I have a few simple observations from this text. And the bottom line is this. It's going to be on the screen. The resurrection of Jesus means that believers, those who believe this, have both a present comfort and a future hope that cannot be shaken. I want to walk through a few things. First, we're going to look at the evidence, the empty tomb, and how they interact with this reality that they came to a stone being rolled away. Then we're going to see Jesus appearing to three different groups, to Mary, the disciples, and then again to Thomas. And then we're going to ask, what does it mean that we might believe and in response to believing have life? What was John talking about when he said, I've written this so that you might believe and in believing have life? What would that look like? So first, the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene, this lady scorned by those who would judge her, gets up early in the morning, first thing, and the first one to discover that the stone is no longer in front of the tomb, but it's been rolled away. She doesn't understand what's going on, and she sees, she does not yet believe, but she sees the evidence that something miraculous has happened. And not understanding this, she goes and runs back to the disciples. She tells Peter and John, listen, the stone is gone, and the body has been taken. She's wondering if something explainable has happened here. She's trying really hard to wrap her mind around the unexplainable that's going on. And she goes, gets Peter and John, they run back, and all three of them beholding the empty tomb. All three are seeing the same things. They're not all having the same reaction to the evidence that Jesus has indeed risen from the grave. It says this in John 28 and 9. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in. Okay, a few things before we look at this. John, he makes a note that he's outrun the other disciple. He gets there, though, and he's a little hesitant about going into the tomb. He just peeks. But Peter, being the guy that he is, he runs straight in. And John's like, I guess we're going in. So he goes in behind him. And when he sees it, something happens for John that does not yet happen for the other people who've seen the evidence of Jesus rising from the grave. What happens? He sees it and he believes it. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. In other words, John looks at this evidence and he's compelled to believe. Now, he does not yet understand all that this means. And all of them throughout the next uh, course of days and months, they're beginning to realize all of these things that have happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave. But for, the, for Mary, she sees it and she does not yet understand. She's still trying to explain the evidence of this reality. Mary stays there. The other two disciples leave. And she's standing at the edge of the tomb just grieving. She's weeping. I don't know if you've ever wept before, but it's not like a small cry. She's pouring out her tears in her grief in this moment thinking that someone, not only grief on top of grief, that Jesus had died, yes, but also that somebody had come and robbed the grave and taken Jesus away. She's looking at this and just weeping. And in this moment, she looks down into the tomb again and she sees something spectacular. She still doesn't understand. Two angels are saying, why are you weeping, Mary? What are you seeking? 
And again, she tries to explain the unexplainable. Somebody has taken his body. Now, I want us to be careful in a room like this. There's some of us who already kind of assume the truth, right? We see the evidence. It makes sense to us. And we cognitively assent. This is true. It's obvious that Jesus rose from the grave. And for those that see the evidence and you're still wondering, what does this mean for us? What does this mean about Jesus? I want us to be the kind of people that are generous with doubters and skeptics and still wondering what's happened. We can accidentally become Pharisees when we look at people who do not yet believe this. You know that? Like we can kind of stumble into it. Uh, There's a guy named Larry Osborne who wrote a book called Accidental Pharisees. And he says, being a Pharisee just happens by accident. It's like eating at Denny's. Nobody plans to eat dinner there, okay? It just kind of happens. It just kind of somehow you find yourself eating dinner there. And in the same way, we can find ourselves looking at those who do not yet believe this or understand the evidence as accidental Pharisees. Something has to happen when we see this. We have to be granted faith and repentance. And there's something that happens for Mary in the following passage. Now, there's a difference, before I move into it, between seeing evidence and knowing Christ. There's a difference in those two things. Lots of people can see the evidence and see that there's something miraculous or something unexplained that's happened. But something happens for Mary in the next scene that that goes beyond the evidence. She witnesses the living Christ. Now, the remaining portion of this chapter are going to be three appearances. And before we look at them, one of my favorite verses and one of my prayers over us weekly is that we would experience the living God. In Acts chapter 1, it describes how Jesus presents himself to those after his death, before he's ascended, after he's resurrected, but he hasn't ascended. It says this in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So my prayer for us is that as we watch how he presents himself alive, that he would do that same thing for us. That he would present himself as the living God today. First, Jesus presents himself alive to Mary. She's there weeping outside the tomb, still confused. She sees the angels. It's still not making sense. They ask her the question, and then Jesus echoes the question. Why are you weeping? What are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? And she says, My Lord, I don't know why, I don't know where they've laid him. She's in this mixture of confusion and grief. She doesn't know where he is. She's really deeply sad. And Jesus speaks to her in this moment of grief, questions her again. She's grieving, looking for him. And then in this moment, he speaks her name. Jesus said to her, Mary. And suddenly she recognizes his voice. She recognizes who's standing with her. She turns and says to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. I want to point out a couple things about this appearance. He calls her by name. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, 
that the Spirit of God would say, this is for you. Maybe you've been sitting in a place like this where someone's preaching and you're like, I don't know how he's calling me out, but I feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking directly to me. Jesus still presents himself alive like this, very personally. He calls people by name and tells them that they belong to him. And then she responds in like, very personally. Now, maybe when you hear this word, Rabbi, which means teacher, um, this means that she's saying, he's, you are my mentor, you're my coach, you're the person that I followed for these years. It's very personal. Now, for many of us, we believe these things to be true, that Jesus did raise himself from the grave. But I wonder if we've listened for his voice calling out our name. Last night, my family and I went to dinner, and on the way home, it just suddenly got onto the subject of each of their names. And we began to explain to each of our kids why we named them what we named them, even the kids who resent being named what, they resent, what they're named, okay? We're like, listen, this is the reason that I've named you this. We pray these things for your life. It's very personal. And Jesus calls Mary by her name. And in this moment, when he speaks her name, she's filled with memory and joy, and she clings to him. He says, hold on. I'm going to ascend to my father. Jesus presents himself alive to her. Not only to her, but later in the same day to his disciples. Now I want you to imagine this before we move to this next place where he presents himself alive. His disciples who've been following him for three years, they're terrified. They're afraid of the Jews who've just killed Jesus, the guy that they were following. All of the past three years of their life, they're wondering, did we just waste it on this guy? He's gone. They're looking at the future thinking, what are we going to do? We were banking all of our hopes on Jesus. And in this moment, completely afraid, locking themselves in, fearful about their leader being gone. The last three years, I'm sure some of them are wondering, what have we done? And in the middle of that, he shows up. Have you guys ever been there wondering if you've wasted too much of your life? Have you ever wondered if you thought like, hey, the best years are behind me? Have you ever been there looking at the future thinking, I have no clue how possibly any of the future will make sense because of the present moment? And Jesus comes right into the midst of that moment and he declares peace. Jesus came and stood among them. In verse 19 it says this, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. In the middle of their fear, in the middle of them wondering what they would do, he says, peace be with you. And then he declares something about their future that they couldn't have imagined. The same way that Jesus had been sent, he's going to send them out as his ambassadors. And then he breathes on them. He gives them the spirit and authority. And what's their response? How do they respond? They're super glad. Just happy. They're glad in this moment. That's what grace does, isn't it? It takes the absolute worst moment and it teaches us both to fear and it relieves our fears. 
So we sing in Amazing Grace. It's grace that taught my heart to fear, but it's also grace that relieves our fears. Jesus speaks peace into the midst of that. Some of you guys might be there too. You brought a collection of anxieties and fears into this room with you. It was really hard to set them aside, even though you believed that this is the greatest day to celebrate. You walked in wondering about your past and your future. And Jesus speaks the same words to those who will witness his living today. Peace be with you. Now, there's one guy that's missing. He wasn't there for the party. Now, I'm so glad all of you are doing great. Eight days later, okay, Thomas says, I, there's no possible way that I could believe. I'm going to have to see it and touch it. I have to see it myself. It's not enough that you would tell me that you believe you saw Jesus. I've got to see him for myself. And everybody, I feel like we're so hard on Thomas, right? They called him Thomas the twin, and everybody knows him as Thomas the doubter. He's Thomas the twin, according to God's word. Poor Thomas. He's just not there at the right moment. Jesus shows up, and he feels like he misses it. He misses out. He wasn't with them. And he's saying to himself and to them, I will never believe. And this is what happens. Eight days later, apparently their gladness is turned back into fear. (laughs) Isn't that how it goes? His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. (laughs) Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. True belief. That's his response. Jesus shows out in the midst of his doubt. He shows up in the midst of Thomas's doubt, skepticism, absolutely convinced that he could not believe what they were saying. And Jesus says, put your hands here. Peace be with you. And in the middle of that, he says back to the Lord, my Lord and my God, his confession. His doubt is turned from complete skepticism into confidence that something unbelievable had actually happened. Now, for those of you who are doubting today, Jesus has a way of showing up and singling people out like this. (laughs) He loves the one that looks like they're on the outside of the 99. He comes after them. He shows up again and says, Thomas, put your hands here. He calls Thomas by name too. He invites him to put aside his disbelief. Stop with this doubting, Thomas. Stop with your skepticism. And for those that are doubting right now, I want you to hear the words of Jesus spoken over Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And for everyone in this room who believes, hear this blessing, the words of Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who've never seen and they still believe. Now, there's something that we're, we believe is supernatural about proclaiming Jesus' words like this. Now, I don't think that because I said this, that someone who's doubting will somehow like, I guess it's true. But there's something supernatural about proclaiming this message. 
It says in Romans chapter 1 that by proclaiming this, it demonstrates the power of God. There's something about telling this story and for us pausing in front of the masterpiece again of Christ's accomplished work in the cross and in his resurrection where it brings dead people to life, spiritually dead people to life. So maybe some of you are walking into this room thinking, it's kind of good that these people believe this, right? It's a good thing for society that people have a moral judge. Maybe you walked in today thinking this is all foolishness. But here's the mystery of this gospel. That in the proclamation of this foolishness, God takes skeptical hearts and he convinces them that it's true. Because the Spirit still uses the foolishness of words and syllables and proclamation to convert people. Now, that desire that Jesus had for Thomas, I still believe that God uses the proclamation of his gospel to proclaim those same words. Stop your unbelief. Believe. He's making that plea that we too would come to the table and be blessed as he described here. Because the value of believing this, it surpasses everything else. In fact, Paul describes this in Philippians. He says, I've counted everything to be lost in the surpassing value of what? Of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. So that's the conclusion today. That's the conclusion of this chapter and the rest of this book, that we would hear these words written to us so that we might believe and in believing we would have life. So read this verse with me again. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Why? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so my conclusion today is this, just as John said, that we would believe, and in response to that believing, that we would be granted life. So my hope is that we would believe. Do you already believe? The hope is also that it wouldn't just conclude with that, but that we would have this gift of life. J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, highly recommend it. He describes the difference in those who know about God and who know the living God. And he has these four things that look like us having life. Number one, people that know God, they have a great energy for God. Number two, they think great thoughts about God. Number three, they have great boldness for God. Four, they have great contentment in God. This proclamation of life for those who believe looks like the same thing being demonstrated when Jesus appeared. It looks like our uh, being comforted in the midst of our weeping. It looks like the middle of our fear and anxiety, Jesus showing up and saying, peace be with you. It looks like us wondering and doubtful and skeptical and him coming before us, calling our name and us saying, my Lord and my God. So what does this life in his name mean? It means comfort in the present and hope for the future. Just as Jesus shows up and presents himself alive, he's doing that today. For everyone that believes, we're united with his spirit and all day long he's speaking peace over everyone who puts their faith in him in our grief, and our fears, in our doubts. He's turning us to comfort, to joy and gladness and belief. He's still presenting us alive. And what should that do for us in the present moment? Well, Isaiah 
prophesied of this moment where Jesus would be glorified and everyone would know that he's God. And this is how he described it. In Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now this moment when he's resurrected is a moment of glory that points to a future moment where everyone's belief will be made sight. Now, we can receive this comfort in the present tense, and it also gives us a great hope for the future. That death is not the end of us. Jesus is the first fruits of everyone who would believe. All of us headed towards this day when we face the reality of our mortality. One day, our life will be no more on this earth, and that's not the end of us. God has promised that everyone who believes in him will also be resurrected with him. That just as we've been baptized with him, we're united with his spirit and he will raise us again. So Jesus looked defeated, right? He looked defeated on that day. It looked like it was over, but it wasn't over. And if you go, today we were talking about a friend, uh, someone on the worship team was having a friend that had passed away. She was saying there was a peace that was unexplainable in that house. That's what happens in the midst of our grief when we believe that this is true. Now, some of you, I'm going to go back to that first picture, except this is a different one. I brought this up with some friends this week, that people only spend 15 seconds in front of the Mona Lisa. And somebody that had actually seen it, they're like, well, here's why. It's kind of underwhelming, and you can't get close to it, and there's an obnoxious crowd of people with selfies. You can't even get near this thing, Okay. The masterpiece, you can't get close to it. The thing everybody knows about. Now, I want to acknowledge there's a lot of obstacles of seeing Jesus. Some Christians are in the way, you know. But I don't want that to stand in the way of you knowing the living God. He invites us to come near to him, to witness his power and his life. And so my prayer today is that if you're believing that he would show up as alive, that he would show up in the midst of your grief, of your fears, and your doubts, and he would present himself alive to you, and that it would change everything. So today, if he's called you by name, and your grief, and your sorrow, my prayer is that God would present himself as good and alive, that he would turn your fears into great gladness, that his life would change the way that you live your life. That this present reality of his spirit united to yours would speak peace to you again in the middle of your confusion and grief. That his resurrection would resurrect your purpose on this earth. That he would speak authority for what he's called you. Just as he was sent from the Father, he's sending all of you who believe with boldness. I pray that you'd fear no detachment from this world because he's promised us new life. That this resurrection hope would change the way that we look at our present moment and all the moments ahead. That our grief would be gladness. That our fear would be peace. And that our doubts would be completely assured today that He is the living God. That we would know the surpassing value of knowing Christ and the power 
of his resurrection today. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this masterpiece that you've defeated even death. The worst thing that could happen to us, you've removed all fear. I pray that this would be comforting to the, those who believe today and those who are struggling and skeptical, that they would come near and see you as the living God. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.